This episode is brought to you by Bellingholm School of Music, giving musicians of all ages the opportunity to learn, perform, and excel in their musical endeavors. Bellingholm School of Music offers music lessons, performance opportunities, and professional rehearsal spaces with integrated recording studio technology. They have an incredible roster of 23 talented and engaging teachers and state-of-the-art facilities to serve the Whatcom County region. Stop in or visit bellinghomeschoolofmusic.com today to schedule a free introductory lesson, inquire about rehearsal space rentals, or book a recording session. Bellingholm School of Music. Welcome home. This episode is brought to you by Community Strength Painters. For over 20 years, Community Strength Painters has been serving Whatcom County families with impeccable quality, unmatched customer service, and an industry-leading warranty on all interior and exterior jobs. Community Strength Painters is committed to creating value for customers and the world they live in through their Community Betterment Initiative by donating time and materials each year to local nonprofits, including the Whatcom Land Trust, the Chuckanut Center, and as proud volunteers at the Subdued String Band Jamboree. To schedule a free estimate or to submit nominations for charity work, email info at communitystrengthpainters.com. Community Strength Painters, making your home and our community a brighter place to live. The following episode contains explicit language and a discussion about sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Little City Big Sound. I'm your host, David Pender Lofgren. I want to begin by mentioning that as of this episode, Little City Big Sound is one year old. We released our first episode in April of 2018, and frankly, at that point, this project was very much an experiment. I had been wanting to produce a podcast for years, and when Andy Rick responded to a call that I had put out looking for a producing partner and a sound engineer, I immediately knew that this thing might just work. Now, I'll be the first to admit that there was a steep learning curve and that we're still learning new things with every episode. But I am so proud of the work that we've done over the past year. In the media landscape that's driven by sound bites and measured in virality, we believe that taking time to listen to people's stories and creating a space where we can step back from that daily churn is increasingly important. I've been continuously impressed with the guests on this program. Not only have they offered up their time, but they've come into this studio and been honest and thoughtful and vulnerable. It's easy to get caught up in celebrity culture and the cult of personality, but that's not what we're about here. This is an opportunity for the folks in our music community to sit down and tell us what makes them tick, share with us how they find the resolve to pursue their creative endeavors in the face of a crumbling music industry, and to reflect on how our community has shaped their lives and how they have shaped ours in return. Now, as a listener to this show, you know what we do here. And hopefully, you find this kind of long-form, deep dive into the lives of our guests valuable. If you do, if you think that what we're doing is valuable for our music community and beyond, now is your chance to support it. The cool thing about the podcasting model is that you get to choose how you want to support us. All you have to do is take a minute, Go to our website, littlecitybigsound.com, and click on the Support the Show button at the bottom of the page. From there, you get to decide how much you value this thing. You can make a one-time contribution of any amount. You can 
become a continuing supporter through our Patreon page, or you can talk with us about becoming an advertising partner. So please take a minute and help us amplify the voices of the people that make our community such a vibrant place to live. Go for it right now. I'll wait. Okay, now that we've gotten that out of the way, I am thrilled to have this month's guest on the show. When we were starting Little City Big Sound a year ago, we compiled a list of the folks that we wanted to interview. At the top of that list was music and film editor for the Cascadia Weekly, Carrie Ross. Carrie's been at the center of Bellingham's music community for close to 20 years, first as the publisher of her own Alt Weekly, then as a writer and editor for What's Up Magazine, the Bellingham Weekly, and finally at the Cascadia Weekly, where she's been covering our music scene with her unique voice and enthusiasm for over a decade. It took a dozen emails and finally just tracking her down at work to get her on the show, but once she sat down behind that microphone, Carrie had a ton of interesting things to say about her career, our community, and what it's like to report from the heart of Cascadia. Here's our conversation. Carrie Ross, welcome. Thank you. Let's start just with the basics. So can you tell me uh, what you do, where you're from, and how you got here? I am originally from Everett, Washington. Everett, yo. I came here to go to college like everybody else did and then managed to remain employed long enough to stay here until now. Um, I'm the music and film editor of the Cascadia Weekly, and I also do... Most of the office work there, so I guess I'm kind of the office manager as well. I am a part-time projectionist at the Pickford Film Center, and I've been there for 17 years. And uh, then I also do a bunch of freelance copy editing for local action sports publications. So I work a lot, basically, is the summary. How did you get to Bellingham? I drove up the I-5 corridor (laughs) from Everett. It's a straight shot. Um, I went to Everett Community College, got a transfer degree, knew I wanted to go to journalism school, knew Western had a really good one. They accepted me, so here I came. You knew you wanted to go to journalism before, go go into journalism before you went to college? Was that like in high school you were like, I'm going to be a journalist? I think Uh, my mom recalls me first talking about wanting to be a journalist when I was like seven or eight years old, but my dad, uh, worked for the Seattle Times my whole life, not as a journalist. He was a truck driver, but I sort of grew up in that press room, not in the newsroom, but you know, uh, and I think from that, I got this really strong sense of the paper comes out every day. The people who put it out right down to the truck drivers are really committed to getting it out every day. You know, my dad still, no matter how hard of a day he's had or how long of a day he's had, he still comes home and sits down and reads the paper the first thing. So, you know, I sort of, it was ingrained in me. As the film and music editor at the Cascadia Weekly, you have to write an article every week, a column, compile a music calendar, write the film descriptions. Mm -hmm. Is that... Yep. Sort of the list of the things that you... That That's the list. And then I do that big grid that has all of the shows at all of the music venues in town. Can you just talk me through like what your sort of workflow is uh, over the course of a week to keep that churn going? 
Mondays and Tuesdays are the production days for the Cascadia Weekly. There's essentially the staff is only five people and then a bunch of freelancers. So we're all doing any number of things. Yeah, so Monday and Tuesdays are our production days. We go to press on Tuesday evening. And then my week is pretty neatly split between editorial duties and bookkeeping duties there. So I spend Wednesday, Thursday, Friday doing bookkeeping stuff and then starting up again on the editorial end of the weekly doing the next week's like clubs, music venues thing. That's the first thing I do because it's the most time consuming And then usually a story will follow from that. Once I see it all laid out in front of me in an Excel document, I can see what I want to cover. Sometimes I know way in advance, but sometimes it's a little not quite as well planned out. You know, and then I go through, you know, I write the things. I go through the, gather all the bits and pieces, put the headlines in, put the little info boxes in, all of that stuff. And then submit it all. And... Then we proof the paper, it goes to press, we start all over again. What's your actual reporting process like for the music section? Like, are you writing from a press release or like a conversation with a manager? Or are you like going online and watching like shaky live videos of bands that are coming up and extrapolating from there? Like, how do you actually get the information that you end up putting into the, into the article? It's kind of all of the above. It just depends. There's a lot of different factors that go into play when it comes to choosing what I want to write about that uh, are fairly hard to delineate but are always in my brain all the time. And uh, usually when I settle on a story, then I start the process of learning about it. But I always try and write from the standpoint of what is interesting to me. I very rarely write just a straight biography of a band or a musician because, you know, you can go on Wikipedia and read that shit. So I usually try – it usually starts with one small fact that I find that's really interesting to me. And then I just go into a wormhole and this story kind of builds itself. I start to write it and one paragraph leads to another to another. I rarely have a story all planned out when I start. It all just kind of flows from the beginning and then – it, you know, it happens. I'm lucky I don't get writer's block, so I can kind of always produce something. You've never had writer's block? I've never really had writer's block at all. Wow. But I think it's because I'm always pretty – I think that if I were not always able to find something in a story that was interesting to me, it would be very hard to write about. But I can always find something. Like, you know, musicians are people. Bands are made of people. People are fascinating. Has that process changed over time? Like, has it gotten easier to do that? Or did you have to sort of figure out how to pull on that thread, so to speak? I've grown faster at it, I think. What has changed is that I have learned that the readership of the weekly will kind of go along for the ride with me. So I know when I learn some random fact about a band that maybe nobody else would think to build a story around because it's not necessarily related to their music, that I can write a story that kind of starts there and people will come along with me and that those tend to be the stories that people like that are a little bit more unorthodox. So I think because the readership trusts me, I'm able to trust myself. So it's gotten easier in that sense. I don't second guess myself the way that I used to. And, you know, 
every so often I go back and I read something that I write and I think, man, that's good. I don't remember writing that. And then sometimes I read it and I think, man, that's idiotic. I really shouldn't have done that. But, you know, then a few days go by and I get a chance to do it again. What's your goal when you're writing the feature article every week? Like, do you have a sense of like, this is what I'm trying to convey to people or this is what I'm trying to get people to do? Yeah. My goal is always to just get people to go to shows. That's it. Like, I always say that I just want to get people through the door. And then what happens when they're through the door is not on me. I'm just trying to pique some interest and get people to go to stuff. You know, that's, I'm sort of a cheerleader in that way. I'm a pusher. That's what I'm, you know, I'm pushy. I just want people to go do shit. And I think that that comes across that I'm enthusiastic about it, that I'm not, you know, just trying to be like, look, here's this cool band. I'm going to use a bunch of obscure terms to describe them and show off how smart I am about music. You know, I'm not a musician. I'm not an expert. I'm a fan. So I write from that viewpoint. And uh, so, yeah, I'm just trying to get people to go to shows because, you know, that's what makes our music scene go around. Since the beginning of the Cascadia Weekly, um, you've had a photo of a chicken uh, next to your byline. Yes. What, what's the deal with that? Uh, when I first started writing the column, they wanted to put a picture of me in there. And that was a very short-lived idea because I shot it down very quickly. And then there was some idea about making some kind of graphic element. or, But, you know, because we're the weekly and we kind of fly by the seat of our pants, uh, I really love chickens a lot. I don't know where it came from. The first piece of art I ever made in kindergarten was a chicken made out of yarn and beans. And my mom has it framed in her kitchen. And uh, so we had this really strange high-res photo of a featherless chicken, of a naked chicken, and kind of stuck it in there. Jesse Kinsman, our graphic designer, kind of stuck it in there as a joke, I think, and it just stuck. And then at some point, we started dressing it up, and then it's just gotten out of control from there. Why didn't you want a photo of yourself? It just didn't feel – I guess it's just not so much my style. I don't really want it to be about me as much. I mean, I write personally. I write about myself, but I always try and focus it outward. Also, it's – you know, I try and keep a little bit of distance between – my personal life and my sort of Cascadia Weekly slash Pickford life and putting a picture in the paper. And I think especially being a woman and putting my picture in the paper invites some things that I'm not necessarily comfortable with. You know, I've had, even without putting my picture in the paper, I've had issues with people who have thought that my writing was to them personally and developed attachments to me, like people who I do not know. So in retrospect, it seems like a good decision to put the chicken in there. Plus, the chicken gets probably more attention than any single other element of the paper. People talk to me about the chicken every week, and I love it. Can you talk about what your working relationship is with, uh, like, the rest of the editors and contributors at the paper? Like, are you guys – do you all, like, work in the same office? Is there, like, a pitch meeting that happens at some point? Is there, like – I guess I'm interested in in uh, how much of the concept for each paper is, like, this is a vision for one 
paper that's going out for the week or whether it's just sort of, you know, a bunch of different things all compiled at the last, in the last few stages? Well, so this is an evolution too. We used to have, the process used to be that every week when the paper came out, we would have an editorial meeting where we would all get together and go through the paper and then we would go through the next week's paper, what was going to happen at the next week's paper. And then partially because meetings make me really homicidal and I do not, I act like a monster in meetings. We now limit the amount of meetings we have. I swear to God, I'm not a monster like probably 65% of the rest of the time. And we also have worked together for so long. The four of us, the three editors and the graphic designer have been working together for uh, some of us 20 years. I went to journalism school with Jesse, the graphic designer. So we don't necessarily need to have those kinds of meetings where we plan everything out anymore. So we generally always know what's going on with one another. We all share an office. We're all in there together a few days a week. We make the necessary amount of plans for the next week's issue, but usually we have it pretty well. We've got it so well dialed in at this point that we don't necessarily need to have a meeting from week to week. When we had do special issues like the best of issues and we do several guides over the course of the year, those are very planning intensive and we there's a lot that goes into those, but that's not the norm. Um, I, I can only imagine that you receive, like, a ton of press releases and requests for coverage and, you know, hastily written emails from bands and, and promoters and stuff. Um, how do you deal with all of that information coming in? Like, are, uh, are there factors that help you decide what you're going to cover? Yeah, usually I receive a ton of press releases, but the vast majority of them are for shows not happening in Bellingham. Like, they're Seattle, Vancouver, so those just kind of go out the window. And uh, I receive very, very, very little from Bellingham bands ever. There are a few uh, bands and musicians that keep me in the loop, but the that is so far outside the norm. And uh, the main thing that helps me decide what to write isn't necessarily anything that's coming into my inbox, although that's always helpful if bands want to tell me what they're doing. Do not assume that I know Tell me the squeaky wheel gets the grease. Um, but it's mostly like like I said before, looking at that Excel document and seeing it all out in front of me. It's like snapping together pieces of a puzzle and then you can see the whole picture and then you can decide where to go from there. Are there times that you've uh, – like you, you write in first person a lot. Are there times that you feel like you have to sort of don a character in that? Like do you feel like that's – genuinely your voice coming through all the time or are there times when you're you know sort of writing from a place of like I'm going to act like this is how I feel about something but I don't actually feel this way about something I would say that the voice on the page is like the most enthusiastic version of myself in real life I'm a bit more sarcastic I swear a lot more but I would say that's authentically me on the page. The one thing that people always say is that when they meet me after having read me is that I talk just exactly the same way as I write. And it's that is me. They're on that page. I cannot escape it. I cannot get away from it. Those idiotic things that I say, those are really idiotic things that I say. <laughs> so, yeah, I would not say that I don a character. I would say that I do not 
love everything that I write about to the extent, like I make it sound like every band is my favorite band. And that can't possibly be true. But most of the shows that I write about, I think are definitely worthy of coverage. And if it's worthy of coverage, then I'm getting on board. So, you know, in that sense, it's kind of, it's pretty easy. Do you ever write about bands that you genuinely don't like? There have been some stories that I have written because I know that it is, you know, it's all about serving the audience and the readership, and the audience and the readership does not have the same exact same taste in music that I do. Like the, you know, the joke is about how I hate reggae and I hate jam bands. That's the that's the thing that follows me around, will follow me. Somebody will spray paint it on my gravestone when I'm dead. And it's true. Those are not my favorite kinds of music, but... There's a huge audience in Bellingham for jam bands, and I'm way into the fa- fact that people are so supportive of it. And just because it's not my particular cup of tea does not mean it doesn't deserve coverage. So, you know, when I cover stuff that I don't necessarily – it's not stuff that I would necessarily listen to – I try and, again, find something that's really interesting about the bands themselves, and there's always something. Do you feel like your taste in music has changed as a result of the work that you do covering music? I would say that because I often listen to bands that I wouldn't otherwise listen to, that my taste in music has not changed, but... I have discovered a lot more music that I don't know that I would have stumbled on if I didn't have this job. You know, like I sort of came to a love of like alt-country music through this job. And now that's one of my favorite kinds of music. You know, I've always loved loud rock music because I'm from Everett and it's in the water there. You have to. But I've learned to, you know, love more classical music and more jazz music and stuff that's outside of that wheelhouse through this job. But maybe that's just because I'm growing older. I don't know. Brent talked about this thing that um, I wonder if you're aware of. Like we were talking about the ritual that surrounds the thing that you put out. Like mm-hmm. that so many people have this this very ritualized experience that goes with the weekly. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Every when I go out in town, uh, you know, the joke is that like we go out of town on Wednesday, we see – Everybody, every place is, you know, reading it. And then by, like, Monday, you just see it in, like, the gutters everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. Yeah. It's got to feel kind of cool to know that you're part of that ritual. Yeah. Yeah. It's really – every time somebody says I read about it in the weekly and then I went to it, it just knocks me out. It just – I can't – or, you know, sometimes – especially like Craig from the – Craig Jewell from the Wild Buffalo, like he'll reach out and said, you know, you wrote that story and it sold out the show. And that just like – it's, you know, doing this in a – having to do it 52 to 53 times a year depending on the schedule – means that we just shove the the stories out into the world and then we have to start working on the next one. So it's hard to know what sticks, mm. you know? And it's hard to, if you pay too much attention to sort of the noise of it, you can lose your focus. So, you know, it's really kind of amazing to hear that we write about stuff, people read it, and then they act. I mean, the whole paper is designed as a call to action, but that doesn't mean that people are going to do the stuff you want them to. 
It's like a miracle. How do you deal with the power and responsibilities of being the voice of our music community? I try not to think about it. I mean, I guess one part of that question is like, do you feel like you have power? Or is there like, is there some way that you frame like what that power is that you have? I don't necessarily think about it in terms of power. I Let me clarify. I don't ever think about it in terms of power. I do, however, think about it in terms of responsibility and not just from my Cascadia Weekly job, but I have a fairly public role with the Pickford as well. And, um, you know, every... I always say that I can never leave my house and be in a bad mood because I never want to run into somebody who has a question, wants to know what movies are showing or what shows are coming up or just wants to give me a suggestion or give me a piece of feedback and have me be irritable toward them because that the fact that people can come up to me and talk to me means I'm doing my job right. So I feel as though I have a responsibility in that way that you know, when I leave my house, I represent the Cascadia Weekly and the Pickford Film Center. And I think that, you know, that's good for me. It's good for me to carry that. Probably keeps me from acting out a lot more than I do. Has that sense of yourself, uh, like as a public figure, has that shifted over time? Like, is that something you sort of had to like become aware of? Or or um, is there some way that, that you, you've evolved into that role? Oh, yeah. When I was working, first working for What's Up, because I worked for What's Up magazine for like five years before I started with the Cascadia Weekly. And when I started working for them, nobody really knew who I was. Nobody cared. You know, I was just this girl who was writing. I wasn't in a band. I didn't want to be in a band. People didn't really have to take me that seriously. But now, you know, I definitely know that you know, even when I make a, a Facebook post or whatever, I just assume it's all public and that because people see my name in print every week and because people see me making announcements in front of the audience at the Pickford, I know that there's going to be some level of interest in what I'm saying. And so I try to be cautious of that or conscious conscious of that, not cautious because I'm not very cautious. You know, so I try to be a little bit more tempered in my opinions. I will tend to research an issue a little bit more before running my mouth about it. You know, I understand that especially online when people see me commenting about things that sometimes they're viewing me through the lens of either the Cascadia Weekly or the Pickford. And so that might influence how they think of those organizations. So it's, you know, it's, it's a definite thing. Uh, you've been pretty vocal on your personal Facebook page about several sexual assault allegations against local businessmen in Bellingham. Yes. <clears throat> First off, thank you for doing that. Thank you for speaking out. I think uh, it can be really hard to be a vocal ally to people who have uh, suffered abuse, and um, I appreciate that you do that. Thank you. I do wonder if you if you worry about being vocal in that way because you have a public facing 
day job, like because you have this public persona, like are, are there are there ways that you have to think about how you do that or uh, like is, is there a part of you that's sort of weighing your personal feelings versus like Carrie Ross, the public figure? I want to be very clear that I am very, very supported at both of my jobs when it comes to speaking out about this these particular issues. And, um, and in fact, the first place that I, there was really a public statement with my name attached to it was in the weekly when, uh, during the Jameson Regoyan trial, when we printed a thank you letter to, uh, the women who had come forward and had testified and, you know, everything kind of followed from there. I, all of the posts on my Facebook page that I make about that stuff, those issues, those posts are set to public because I understand that this is Carrie Ross, the public figure, speaking. The language may be salty and the there might be anger and, you know, some real straightforward talk going on, but that is me using my voice as a public figure to amplify something that I feel needs amplification, to draw attention to things that I feel like we have to look at and to not allow people to look away because it's uncomfortable to have this within our community. Do you feel like there are ways that we as a community need to change the way that we deal with having abusers and having victims in the community? I think this community is having is going through sort of the same evolution that every community is right now. I think that we are really pretty good at I don't really love this term, but the call-out portion of it, we tend to – I mean, things get wild on the internet, and this is not always the case, but we have tended to, you know, be information-driven rather than wildly accusation-driven, although we definitely get into the wild ac accusation part of it. I try and stay with the information part. And we're – we're good at identifying actions related to the call out, like the, you know, like people, there's never, there's not been any kind of organized boycott of anything, but people have made decisions who to patronize and who not to patronize and things like that. Um, we are not good at the part that follows, you know, we can't, these people who hurt people in this way, they live and walk and work among us, and we can drive them all out of town so that they're not our problem, but they just become somebody else's problem when you do that, and those people don't have the benefit of having the information. So I think that we really have to figure out how to support survivors and get them a measure of justice that probably isn't going to come from the legal system, as we've seen, while also figuring out how to work with perpetrators of these kinds of acts so that they don't hurt other people. I mean, to be clear, 
if someone is a rapist, I don't give a shit how they feel about it. I don't give a shit if they have a happy life forever after. I don't give a shit about any of that. The only thing I give a shit about is whether is that they never hurt anybody else again. And if we cast people out, that's not the way to get there. So we that those are the conversations that we need to have and they're complicated and they're hard and they're full of nuance and we don't yet know how to have those conversations. But I think there's enough people working on it and wanting to work on it that we're going to start to get there. We're going to start to figure it out. Do you feel like Facebook or social media is the best place for us to have those conversations? Or do you think there's some – I guess what I'm really trying to ask is like part of me wonders how much of this conversation can happen in our local media, understanding that the burden on local media is like – you have to fact check the stuff that you're saying and it's really hard to fact check an accusation of sexual assault. Those sto- yeah, those, those stories are very 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 difficult to cover in local media. They're very sensitive. It's very hard to get it right. It's really easy to get it wrong. And yeah, oftentimes hands are tied by accusations not gaining any ground within the legal system and just sort of existing in this unsubstantiated, not able to be substantiated nether region. So there have been uh, a couple of cases specifically in town where one thing that that's happened that's been a result of social media is, is that I have learned that running my mouth a lot on social media about these things is has some benefits to it, but it also sort of disqualifies the Cascadia Weekly from being an objective voice. And so in one of those cases where I had thoroughly disqualified myself, I had some back-channel discussions with a Bellingham Herald reporter that was trying very dil- diligently to nail down enough facts and enough substantiation and to be able to run with the story and couldn't get couldn't get there. The story was definitely there. It's just I as a private citizen am not bound by the same things as, you know, working for a newspaper you are bound by legally speaking. You know, and I can paint a target on my back and if somebody wants to come for me, you know, that's fine. I don't own a house. I drive a 1995 car. Come for me. But, you know, you come for my newspaper, and that's a whole other bigger deal with a lot more at stake. Mm. Well, with uh, the things that are at stake, regardless, I appreciate that you say something. Thank you. And I, what I do want to say is that people often praise me for being vocal. And for me... Staying quiet is scarier than talking. So I'm lucky in that it's – I don't think it's like a huge act of bravery for me to – you know, it's a huge act of bravery for these people who have survived these things to trust me enough to let me say something. It's a huge act of bravery to survive sexual assault and just go on with your life. I mean, I'm, I'm a sexual assault survivor. I know how it works. Um, but, you know, staying quiet about things has never 
in my life has never kept anybody from being hurt. So now I talk in the hopes that it might help. If you or someone you know has experienced sexual assault and you want someone to talk to, you can call Domestic Violence and Sexual Assault Services at 877-715-1563 or the National Sexual Assault Hotline at 800-656-HOPE. Someone is there to take your call 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. You don't have to go it alone. Help is available. This episode is brought to you by Irish and Folk Mondays at Green's Corner. Every Monday, Jan Peters hosts a thriving Irish music session, followed by a stunning acoustic concert series featuring local, regional, and nationally touring artists performing a wide variety of folk and traditional music. Listeners and players alike can enjoy the great selection of food and drink available at Green's Corner, experience the age-old tradition of session playing with Bellingham's intergenerational Celtic music community, and revel in the world-class sounds of the feature performance. This month, Jan Song's Productions is proud to present Pan-Celtic Wonders' Lindsay Street, folk icons Larry Hanks and Deborah Robbins, The Three Seas featuring guitarist Casey Connor cellist Clea Johnson and fiddler Colleen Freeman, the return of Patter McMahon, and touring powerhouses Nick and Luke. For showtimes and more, visit yonsongsproductions.com and follow Irish and Folk Mondays on Facebook. Irish and Folk Mondays at Green's Corner. If Mondays make you blue, come to Green's. This episode is brought to you by Evergreen Remodel Construction. If you could change one thing about your home, what would it be? A kitchen remodel? Build out the master bathroom? Those are good options. Classics, really. But come on, be creative. How about that energy-efficient ADU? The four-season porch that would allow you to enjoy your yard regardless of the weather. You could knock out a wall and finally have that open floor plan you've been dreaming of. No matter how you want your home to grow, Evergreen Remodel Construction is here for you every step of the way. The carpenters at Evergreen Remodel Construction know that your home is your sanctuary. That's why they pride themselves in low-impact building practices to ensure that your space is clean and safe for you and your loved ones at the end of every day. Licensed, bonded, and insured, Evergreen Remodel Construction offers competitive rates to build your dreams into a reality. Call 360-927-2258 and mention Little City Big Sound to receive a free estimate for your next project. That's 360-927-2258 and mention this ad to receive a free estimate and take the first step towards building your dream. Can you explain to me like where you're writing for the music section fits into sort of the bigger picture of music coverage in town. I mean, there's like, you know, Entertainment Northwest and the Take Five and, of course, What's Up Magazine. Do you feel like you serve like a specific niche or is there like some way that you think of sort of those different entities as interacting? I don't necessarily think about it like that. 
I think that I cover stuff that's much more general interest and it, I think is shifted toward a different audience than, say, What's Up covers. And I know that, you know, like I know Brent will give a lot of coverage to local bands and local musicians. So I know that I can focus on other things that are sort of what our readership is more interested in. So in that way, you know, I think we all sort of fulfill a role. We all definitely operate symbiotically. It's really nice to live in a town where all of the music editors are, you know, good friends. Like Brent's one of my best friends. So we're not like at each other's throats. We're not trying to like outright each other tell the story better. We're just trying to cover as much as possible, all of us together. So Brent has announced that he is retiring from the WhatsApp, uh, his WhatsApp duties. And it's unclear as of this recording whether someone's going to purchase that magazine from him or whether he's just going to uh, retire it. If the WhatsApp doesn't continue... Do you feel like that's going to change your role or like you'll need to shift your coverage in some way because of that? For sure. Yeah. Yeah. There's no doubt. I've thought about that, but I like to not face the reality that what's up could go away. I want it to last forever. Are you listening, Brent? I want it to last forever. Um, But yeah, for sure, if somebody doesn't pick up where Brent is planning to leave off, it will definitely force me to have to change some things. But, you know, that will be good. Anytime you have to take something apart and put it back together again, especially something that you're so familiar with, like I am my own music section, it ends up being beneficial. So it's not something I'm necessarily dreading, although I am 1,000% dreading the potential end of what's up if that happens. Do you have any scoops on that? I am – I plead the fifth. I just – I could just say I'm not taking over the magazine. <laughs> That's fair. That will probably be a frequent question for it's you. Bi- huh? Yeah, I get – it's a very frequent line of inquiry. Can you talk about what the difference is between sort of the feature article and the rumor has it column? Like do you – in your head are those – uh, sort of separate missions, or do, do they serve se- separate purposes? Yeah, the feature article is is focused on a band or an event or a festival. It's much more straightforward. It's much more a traditional piece of writing. The rumor has it column is sort of my place to say whatever I want, and a lot of times it acts as like a shorter feature story for something that I couldn't, that I wanted to write about but was not able to. And then sometimes it acts as a vehicle for me to talk about things that are on my mind. Uh, It acts as a space for, to memorialize places and people that we've lost. You know, it's a place where I can directly reach out to the community in a way that I can't in a narrative piece that's a little bit more distant. Those two sections are definitely, definitely different. Like, I will say all kinds of things and rumor has it that I would never say in a story. Like, you know, I think I referred to myself as 
like a depression sloth a, f- a couple of months ago. I don't think I would do that necessarily in a story. I also wrote that column at like three in the morning and came back the next day and read it and was like, what was happening to you at three in the morning? But it stayed. Is it weird to be your own editor in that sense? In the moment, it's not weird because we're just trying to get the paper out and I'm just trying to make sure that by the time the stories are written, I don't necessarily have time to go and rewrite something unless a show gets canceled and I have to. And uh, so in the heat of the moment, but there are plenty of times when I go back and I read afterwards and I'm just like, why did anybody let me say that? Why didn't anybody stop me? I mean, there are other times that I read where I think, okay, I did that right. And when you – particularly like when we lose someone and I write about it, that's the hardest writing that I do. And when I can look back and think, okay, I got that right. You know, I said something that resonated with people in a way that didn't make things harder for them, which is all I'm ever trying to do. Then that's that's when it's nice to be my own editor. But a lot of times it's looking back and saying, why did I say that? Or why did I say that that way? Or why did I use 25 words to say something that I could have said in five words? So, yeah, it's weird. Something I feel like the um, the media industry struggles with a lot is sort of becoming an echo chamber. That is to say, like, for various reasons, a story gets covered by one outlet and then the other outlets cover it. And on a, I mean, this is true of all scales, but, you know, what that means inside of our community is that certain voices are elevated and others are not. Uh, Certain communities are recognized or uh, written about and others are not. Is this something that you think about? Is this something that is a discussion at the weekly? Like, how how do you, how does that figure into the way you guys cover stuff and, and the way that you personally write? I would say that the number one dis- ongoing discussion at the weekly is how to adequately cover that which we can't adequately cover. You know, how to cover, who to cover, what's not being covered. That drives pretty much every brainstorming session, every casual conversation, you know, every serious dedicated conversation. So figuring out how to make room for all of the voices and figuring out how to not be dominated by the loudest voices or the most powerful voices in a room is a huge, huge thing. But I do feel like one of the things about – because we're very clear that we're not like hardcore journalists, journalists. I mean we're journalists at the Cascadia Weekly, but we're community journalists. You know, So we're – we are here in service to the community And I think one thing that we have done very well is that now the community feels very comfortable about reaching out and telling us what they would like to see, what they don't like seeing. And uh, sometimes that can be a bit – I don't think overwhelming is the right word, but sometimes it can be a bit much. But I, I always try and think about what a gift it is that people have such great ownership of the weekly. Like they really, the community really treats it like it's theirs. And so one of the things that makes the echo chamber conversation a little bit easier is that we are always hearing from people who say, you know, I'm part of this part of the community and you're not covering it. Or I'm, I see that you're covering a lot of this. What about this? So we get a lot of feedback that, 
is so incredibly valuable. You worked at What's Up Magazine in the early 2000s, right? Yes. Can you uh, just sort of take me through your career trajectory in that early phase? Like, So you went to journalism school at Western, and then did you get a job at What's Up no. right away? How, how did that happen? Tell me that story. No, there was a chapter in my life that few know about. Uh, so right after journalism school, I think, uh, a man in, who lives still lives in Bellingham, Jacob Hennepin, and I started a newspaper called The Hamster. It was sort of like a ripoff of The Echo in that we had a bunch of classified ads and kind of like the stranger in that it was really irreverent and occasionally borderline pornographic. That part wasn't necessarily my doing. Because at that time, the Echo, believe it or not, was like the most powerful publishing force in Bellingham, except for the Herald. And the Every Other Weekly was a thing. And so we thought that there would be space in town for a paper to come out during the off weeks of the Every Other Weekly and have this more irreverent tone and serve a different part of the audience and, you know, basically get hung up on by potential advertisers all the time because we had Barbies doing sexual things on the back page of every paper. So I did that for like a year, year, year and a half, I want to say. And then we... The two of us who ran ham- the hamster merged that paper with the Every Other Weekly, which was a marriage that only lasted maybe a couple of months before it went up in a ball of flames and we moved out of – Jacob and I moved ourselves and all of ha- the hamster's assets that we had brought to the Every Other Weekly out of the office in the middle of the night. It was not good. And then shortly after that – I went to work for What's Up. I reached out to Brent and was like, I'm not doing anything, and I would like to do something. What's Up seems fun. And I'd started writing about music for The Hamster, so then I just carried that over to What's Up and then to the Bellingham Weekly and then to the Cascadia Weekly. And by the time I'm done, I will have worked for every newspaper in town. Okay, so you worked for the What's Up until 2004. 2005, I think. 2005. I don't know. Brent would know. He's got the encyclopedia. Totally. Um, okay, so you worked for the What's Up until 2005, and then what happened from there? Like, how do you get from the What's Up to the Cascadia Weekly? How I got from the What's Up to the Cascadia Weekly? Uh, what's Up was that kind of another inflection point? I think I was the editor of What's Up at that time, but it was always Brent's magazine. And I was sort of trying to decide, stay or go in Bellingham, stay with what's up, not stay with what's up. Brent was going through some stuff where he was redefining his relationship with the magazine. And I'd kind of been thinking about leaving the magazine, but had not really talked about it with anyone. And into all of that came Tim Johnson, former editor of the Every Other Weekly, who at that time I was not on good terms with, saying, let's have a meeting. And uh, essentially sat me down at Stewart's Coffee House one day and uh, said, this is what I'm thinking. I will create this position for you. You will get to write a column. You will – it was essentially like, here, let me give you everything you want. And I've already thought about what those things are. 
and you can start whenever you'd like to. It did not take me that long before I was like, like earn an actual salary to do this stuff. I would love it. So uh, that's how I started working for the Bellingham Weekly. And then there was a legal dispute among the ownership of the Bellingham Weekly and uh, the owner pulled the plug on it about a year and a half after I started working there, Doug Tolchin, and uh, laid us all off 10 days before Christmas. But it was sadder for him because he had to cancel his Mexican vacation to fire us all. Um, and then there was a protracted legal battle and, uh, but then we got investment capital to start up the Cascadia Weekly and we essentially, we started it up with the same staff as the Bellingham Weekly and kind of just picked up where we'd left off with the Bellingham Weekly. So, and now I've been there ever since. And then that was the point at which my job became a full-time job. That was when I started t- taking over the office management work. And I had been managing the Pickford Film Center at that point, and I stepped down from that to be a projectionist, which is my real true love, and then was able to work full-time for the Cascadia Weekly, which is where I still am. Wait, can we back up for a second? So you and Tim uh, weren't on good terms for for whatever reason? No. No, because when we had worked together, when we had merged the Hamster and the Ever Other Weekly together, it did not go well. And I would not say that Tim and I did not get along. I would say that Tim and I did not ever speak. (laughs) So do you remember what it was like, like what kind of headspace you were in when all of a sudden, you know, this partner from a former sort of failed venture comes forward and says like, hey, can we have a meeting? Like what, where does your head go? My head goes, yeah, we could have a meeting. I want to hear whatever he's going to say to me. And, you know, he was just very straightforward in the meeting, saying that he felt himself to have misjudged that situation, and he underestimated that I was a good asset, and that he realized that there was probably some shit between us, but he thought I needed a bigger platform, and... He could provide it for me, and he thought his paper needed me, and so he was going to ask. And I have been working for him ever since. And, you know, now, you know, we get along great. He comes to my birthday parties. We're friends. He's great. So, you know, it's one of the few times in my life where somebody has been on my bad side and not lived there forever until death. Um, what, when you Jumped from one paper to another. I mean, that's happened several times, right? So um, do you feel like those are opportunities to sort of reinvent yourself or find a new voice or um, like, or those growth moments for you when you went from one spot to another and said like, okay, I'm going to try something else? Yeah, for sure. I would say, yeah, they were all growth opportunities. One thing that happened each time was that when I became – unclear as to whether or not I could do it. And this has been true in my freelance life too, taking on freelance editing projects, is that I, generally speaking, I fall back on my training. And as it turns out, even for somebody who rarely went to class, the Western Washington University journalism program provides you some pretty strong real world journalism training. 
So I always had that to fall back on. Like I had the skill set. And so every time I have had to fall back on that, it it has caught me. So that's nice to know that foundationally, like I can do this. It strikes me that you, I mean, you do a ton of different stuff. Like you do freelance copy editing, you write and edit and business manage the weekly. You work at the Pickford. I'm sure there's a whole bunch of other stuff on top of that too. Like, do you feel like it's hard to maintain some sort of healthy work-life balance and do all of the things that you do? Yes, I work too much. I mean, there's no doubt. Like, I'm a worker. Usually when I'm sitting at home, I'm I'm like one of those people who feels a little – you would think I would get more done, but I would feel a little, like, guilty if I'm not doing something. And yet my house is not clean, so don't – it doesn't go that far. I just really – I have a really nimble, active mind, and so I just feed it with stuff that's interesting to me. You know, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about work-life balance. It helps. I love my job. So it's not really – like my jobs are my life. I love them. So And so much of my personal life is interwoven into my jobs. You know, I it's how I interact with friends. It's gives me social outings to go to. You know, it's it's great. Mm, this is a good one. <laughs> <laughs> I like it when you read your own questions. You're like, yeah, this is a good All one. All right, here we go. It's, a, it's I mean, it's not that good. I'm but really going to get her with this one. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> Can you talk about the ways that uh, the Bellingham music scene has shifted over the years that you've been covering it? I feel, and this is just my opinion, you know, the Billiken music scene always ebbs and flows. You know, we always, everybody who's been around the music scene as long as I have been talks about the past of the Bellingham music scene. Like, it was this golden time that could never be replicated. And, you know, some of that is certainly true. I don't have as much nostalgia as other people do. I tend to really believe that when you spend all your time looking backwards, you don't see what's happening going forward. And so I would say that the Bellingham music scene ebbs and flows, but I would say that it's not, at the present moment, it's not as robust as it has been. And I think that that's a reflection of changes in the music industry as a whole, that smaller music communities all the way up to the music industry itself has not have not figured out how to navigate properly. You know, now the only way that bands can make, earn a living at music is to tour. But in order to get to that place where you can earn a living from touring, you the commitment level has to be so high. You basically have to wreck your life in order to do it. You have to commit to years and years and years of being dirt-ass poor and never knowing if you're going to get anywhere. And then the odds, even then, the odds are completely stacked against you to ever get anywhere. So I understand how that does not feed a music community. You know, it has kind of the opposite effect. And at the same time, the barrier to entry to actually get your music into the world has never been lower. You know, you, anybody can have a Bandcamp account and put music up on it. So in one way, there is more music than ever, and it's easier to access than it ever was. But at the same time, I feel like the live music portion of it 
kind of pays the price for that because there's not as much incentive for bands to really get their shit together live, to practice all the time, to go on tour because the barrier to entry to making it in that way is so very high, has never been higher. So, yeah, we're at a weird time, and it's going to be interesting to see what we do with it, but it is not causing our music scene to be more lively and more robust, that is for sure. Do you feel like there are things that we could do as a community to try and counteract some of those global trends in the music scene? This is an ongoing discussion among every single stakeholder within the music community that I know. Every venue owner especially is talking about this because if you look at, you know, say an Excel document from week to week that tells you every show that's coming up in town, well, almost every show, what you see is that Bellingham has never been stronger when it comes to attracting regional and national acts. Never. Like, we've never been able to draw people here the way that we can now. And at the same time, it's never been weaker for local music scene, for venues that really sort of serve that niche. There's always been a bar, some kind of shitty rock bar in town where any band could get a first show. And that's always been real central to who we are as a music scene. And we don't really have that as much. I'm really glad that Holly Huthman, who owns The Shakedown, that they brought back like The Showdown and The Shakedown because that incentivizes people. It gives them something to play for and play towards. And we're all naturally competitive, but it's a really good competitive spirit because it's, you know, it's not like it's not like some throat-cutting thing. It's just everybody having a good time. So I'm glad that she's doing that because I feel like that's – giving people something to work toward and work for. But yeah, it's stuff like that that's going to do it. We're going to have to be a little bit more creative about incentivizing our local musicians to do things like practice and book shows and, oh my God, publicize their own shows so that at least their own friends come. Like, that's also helpful. You know, it's easier to play with your bros and put stuff up on Bandcamp than it is to do the very, very hard work of overcoming all the obstacles to do anything more or bigger than that. Like the bands that are going for it from Bellingham, I really appreciate. Did you know that Merriam-Webster has an entry that quotes one of your articles as an example for the correct way to use the phrase dialed in? No! Get out! Yeah, let me see if I can find it. Hold on. This is the single most exciting piece of news I have ever been given in my life. And I saw a dog riding in a motorcycle sidecar last night. So this is big stuff. Where am I? Sports Illustrated. Oh, my God. I'm right up there with Sports Illustrated and Auto Racing Digest. (laughs) That's very exciting. Well... You told me that you don't ever Google yourself. I I don't. There's a good chance she doesn't know that she's actually cited in a dictionary. I don't even know the significance of that, and I'm so impressed with myself. (laughs) Like when I was in high school, my uh, high school set a record for the most amount of people simultaneously playing a kazoo song, and I thought that was going to be my claim to fame when I died, but now, now I can put down the kazoo. You, I feel like that somehow gives you uh, the um, citation in the 
dictionary somehow gives you like some super extra cred too. Like you, you'll just become like foot, a footnote for stuff too, you know? I It'll hope so. Like, I've always wanted to be a historical footnote. <laughs> it's official. Thank God. Now I can stop trying to accomplish things. <laughs> What's next for Carrie Ross? Like today? Sure. Mm. We'll start there. I don't even know. Uh, what's next for Carrie Ross, like professionally speaking? Yeah. Do you have some sense of, um, you know, what the next like year or five, is there like a trajectory? I can only imagine that like doing a weekly paper, it can be really hard to stick your head out above the the weekly churn. That's yeah. Happening. The papers never stop coming. Yeah. Do you have any sense of like a, a long-term plan professionally or personally that – that's something other than, you know, continuing to crank out this paper week after week? I would say that some of it depends on the newspaper industry as a whole. It's not an easy time to work at a newspaper, financially speaking. Even for, you know, a small town alt-weekly that's beloved like the weekly is. So some of that is not up to me. Some of that is up to the community and to those who advertise. If they want to keep supporting the weekly, then we will continue to have the weekly and I will probably continue to be there. I have always said that I will stop doing this job when it stops being interesting to me or when I stop liking it or when I don't have things to say anymore or when I can't say anything in a new way. I do tend to believe that this is not a job I should do forever because I think at some point I will want to hand it off to somebody who is younger and who has, you know, more energy f for it and who has some vision that maybe is bigger or broader or different than mine. And if that person comes along, it might hasten any decision-making process on my part. But for now, I'm still really happy, you know, writing stories and copy editing and popping popcorn and showing movies at the Pickford. You know, it's a really, really nice life. And I don't make shit for money, but who needs money? Well, Carrie, I know that you're a very busy person and that you very rarely do interviews. Um, There's really a lot of demand, too. That's what you should know. Well, I, I uh, appreciate everything that you do in this town and... Um, Thanks so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for tracking me down. It's not easy to do. My pleasure. <laughs> All right, that does it for this episode of Little City Big Sound. Many thanks to Carrie Ross for her time and for putting up with my incessant emails. Many thanks to all of you who have contributed to the show, and a special thank you to my wife, Allie, who over the past year has been continuously supportive and patient while I have poured so much time and energy into this endeavor. I couldn't have done it without you. This episode's interview was recorded at Binary Studios. Thanks, Bob. Our ad music is courtesy of Mystery Chi. Thanks, Joel. Our interviews are engineered and mixed by Andy Rick. Our theme music was written and performed by Andy Rick, and our logo was designed by Andy Rick. In fact, Andy and I have been putting in so much time in the studio together that he's started translating my level of sincerity for our guests. That's great. All right. Is it going to be good? It's going to be very good. 
but, but what if it wasn't going to be good? Would you be like, uh, well? No, I would still tell you it was going to be good. He would have said it maybe more like, no, it's going to be great. No, it's like, going to be great. I like it that you're like his secret decoder ring. <laughs> Thank you for everything you do, Andy. Little City Big Sound is a proud member of the Bell Pod Network, a collective of independent podcasts made right here in the city of subdued excitement. Before we go, we've got some really exciting things happening on the show in the near future. Our next guest will be Stephanie Walbon, lead singer for Bellingham supergroup Baby Cakes. We've also lined up some big-name guests for a special episode of Little City Big Sound to be released in the next few months, so keep your ear to the ground for updates. And... I'm excited to announce that Carrie Ross loved being on the podcast so much that she has decided to start a podcast of her own. That's right. Here now is an exclusive preview of her new show. Welcome back to Copy Talk with copy editor Carrie Ross. I fucking hate the Oxford comma. What? Really? Die. Really? Yes. I only want an Oxford comma... The only time I ever want it is if it's used for clarity. I've had knockdown, drag-out fights with people about this. Fucking hate it. I really have very strong opinions about grammar. You know, when I edit things, I come at things from a point of readability. I've read a lot. And the Oxford comma, whether or not it's proper, whether or not it's good grammar, it impedes readability. So get it out. I also don't like uh, colons for the same reason. I prefer an M dash. Stay tuned for that and so much more on the premiere episode of Copy Talk with Carrie Ross.